On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by cardiologist Dr. Paddy Barrett, chatting all things cardiovascular disease. The way I look at this is that the the two statistics that everyone should really be aware of is cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death globally and in most developed nations, but it's also the most preventable. 90% of it can be prevented at an early stage if you just follow the right steps and formula. So I look at it as a, a scary opportunity. As ever available on all podcast platforms. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily, John Magnier, the 15 million handshake deal and the rival tycoon. He's such a well-known figure in the racing and financial world, but he's a bit of a mystery man in the sense that because he doesn't speak publicly or have a media profile. He's notoriously private, but no stranger to public battles. And even Roy Keane apparently said to Alex Ferguson, do you really think he wanted to take on John Magnier in the Irish courts? Now, billionaire John Magnier is headed for the High Court in a row over a lucrative land deal. We've gone from handshakes and deal done, money put into accounts, to a situation where there's no deal at all. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Shane Phelan, legal affairs editor with the Irish Independent, and Richard Kern, Sunday Independent columnist and presenter of The Business on RT Radio 1, to look at the man they call the boss. Shane, he's very low profile for a billionaire, but John Magnier is back in the headlines at the moment over a contentious deal to buy an estate. Tell us where we're talking about here. Yeah, so the estate in question is Barn Estate. It's a 751-acre farm and mansion near Clonmel, right in the heart of the Golden Vale, by all accounts, much sought after property. Not a million miles away from his own Coolmore stud, from his own Ballydoyle training facility. We're literally in the valley of Schlievdemann here. So this would have been a, a prime piece of real estate for him to acquire. Coolmore has been on something of an acquisition spree in that area where land has become available. They've kind of swooped in on a number of occasions. This estate, it's been in the same in the hands of the same family since 1654, the Moore family. They're an old landed gentry family. It goes on sale on, on July 7th via Savills and a local auctioneering firm, REA Stokes & Quirk, with a guide price of 13.5 million euros. And as you, you might expect, Coolmore are, are on this pretty much straight away. We know, for example, that, uh, that one of John Magnier's representatives, a guy called Tim Gleeson, was discussing the possible purchase about six days later on, on July the 13th. By August 22nd, John Magner is ready to make a firm offer. And on that day, Coolmore's farm manager, Joe Houlihan, he makes contact with uh, a local auctioneer involved in the sale. This is John Stokes of REA and invites him to Coolmore House where they have a meeting with John Magner and his wife, Susan. 
According to court papers, which we've seen, an offer is made of 15 million euros. And according to the Magners, said yes, that the trustees are okay with a sale. And, and as far as they're concerned, they had a deal. So it's 15 million of an agreed price. It went on the market for 13 and a half. So it seems all, all parties are, are secure that this is, is going to, to go ahead. And then in, in, from then on, the, 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 the Coolmore side becomes involved in the management of the estate and there's uh, planting of seed and so on. According to the Magners, there was a couple of ways through which this deal could be done. There was what was called a land agreement and there was also what was called an option agreement and there was various steps that would be taken to conform with either of those agreements and and these were done. There was 15 million, for example, transferred to a solicitor's client account. The estate manager, there was a job offer made made to him. That was all part of the deal. And also uh, a tillage license was entered into by Coolmore um, for a consideration of, of one euro. And they basically uh, went on to the land and uh, and started to plough it. So the direction of travel here, according to the Coolmore side, it was very much direction towards the deal being finally done. So we have price agreed, we've handshake, we've deposit down, we've money lodged with with the with the solicitor. We're even starting to take over a bit of management uh, of the place, and then things start to go silent. One of the steps that took place, there was an exclusivity agreement entered into, and that was provisionally to last for the month of September. So we're getting up to the end of September, and there's an indication from the Barron estate side that they're actually not going to continue that exclusivity exclusivity agreement or after its expiry date on September 30th. And the Magners, I suppose, are starting to get a little bit concerned here and there's queries being sent from their solicitors over to the other side. What's going on here? It's claimed by the Magners side that solicitors for the estate told them then on October 3rd, their instructions were that there had been no agreement ever reached in respect of the sale of the property. So we've gone from handshakes and deal done, money put into accounts and tillage agreements and so on and being entered into to a situation where there is no deal at all. Yeah, I suppose anybody who's ever bought a house knows that you can go sale agreed on it and things can collapse. What's the legal status of a handshake, Shane? That's something that's going to have to be raked over now in court. Uh, there was a follow-on, I suppose, to the handshake where uh, Savills did send a letter to uh, the Magner side saying that, look, this was the agreement was, was conditional on a signed contract being entered into. And I suppose the Magner side are saying, well, no, hang on a second, the handshake should be good enough. You know, we have our deal here. So, look, if it ever does get to court, there will be legal argument on it. And, of course, there's been a lot of rumour swirling as to, as to what is actually going on here. There's talk of a rival bidder. There's a guy called Morris Regan who himself is, has got substantial bloodstock operation, uh, Newtown Anner Stud, and he is said to be poised to, to swoop in. Now, he's not party to any to this particular dispute, but the story is out there that, look, this guy is interested and we're just going to have to see what, what developments come from it. This is now a legal matter. As of last week, proceedings were initiated by uh, the Magners and what they're seeking is the specific performance of the 
sale agreement or the contract as they see it for the sale and it's basically an effort to uh, to, to to ram through this deal that the Magnus say that, that was it was agreed Richard Kern the boss as John Magner is referred to he's actually the most influential man in the whole of racing in the whole wide world how did a man from County Cork end up in this situation? There was an element of A, land ownership and B, horses in the family and in the family history. He's from Fermoy in Cork. His dad was a landowner. And on his mother's side, um, his aunt married a man called Rupert Watson, who was third Baron Menton. And at one time was the senior steward of the jockey club in Britain, which basically meant he was the most senior person in horse racing circles there. He went to school in Glenstall Abbey. And he left school at 15 because his father died young and he later moved then to Feathert. And, you know, it was sort of natural enough that he would get into thoroughbred racing, get into thoroughbred breeding. But it was really when he met Vincent O'Brien, a legendary trainer. He married his daughter, Susan. And between John Magner, Vincent O'Brien and a guy called Robert Sangster, they really began to build up the Coolmore enterprise. Horses are like, like good wine. If you can get a good vintage it's more likely to come from the Tattenham Corner area. It's a very unique race course, and it's a real test of a horse. They've got to be fast, they've got to be balanced, they've got to be good looking, otherwise they won't go down the hill, they've got to have a pedigree, they've got to have stamina, they've got to have everything. One of the things was they kind of revolutionized and modernized the way the thoroughbred stud industry worked. And, uh, lackluster is the uh, horse we're racing without in the early stages. They built up a business model where each stallion would have covered more mares. Six furlong mark up there too is Sadler's Wells. Traditionally, you know, in the old days, a stallion might have might have covered, you know, 50, 60 mares in a year, a very successful one. But they actually found ways of ratcheting that up to 120, 160. And it's kind of the norm now that a lot of, you know, very successful stallions might cover between the two hemispheres, 170 or 200 mares. So that obviously massively increases the potential and has now become effectively the preeminent stallion station in the entire world we've had names coming through coolmore Sadler's Wells, arguably the the greatest uh, stallion of all time, Dane Hill, Sadler's Wells' son, Galileo even eclipsed uh, his his father in terms of monetary valuation, Montju, legendary names in horse racing. Absolutely. I mean, the, the operation of some of the names you mentioned would be stallions that could command enormous stud fees. But it's an incredibly professionalized operation. They have interests in Versailles, in Kentucky, New South Wales, in Australia, obviously then Coolmore, and there are other stud operations in that area. Um, the Sunday Independent estimated a few years ago that John Magner may in fact own in the region of nine and a half thousand acres of land in Ireland. So, you know, he's a fantastically wealthy guy and it isn't just about, about the horses. He's got a few buddies who will be of the, the same billionaire class as himself. Uh, who are the Coolmore Mafia, as they're referred to? It's interesting because the, the originals, you know, would have been like Robert Sangster, Vincent O'Brien, John Magner, but then other figures who are 
prominent in racing like Michael Tabor, who's originally a, a London East Ender, and he became fantastically wealthy and successful in the bookie business. And then outside of Coolmore, you know, people that he has done enormous uh, business deals with would be J.P. McManus and Dermot Desmond. But Magner, McManus and Desmond have been involved, for example, in the Sandy Lane Luxury Hotel Resort in Barbados. That was something they bought in 1997, spent over $220 million doing it up. And it's regarded as one of the most prestigious um, resorts in the Caribbean. Now, famously, there were also similar names involved in the ownership of Manchester United. How did Alex Ferguson end up in a row over a famous horse called Rock of Gibraltar? Well, Alec Ferguson was really at the peak of his powers after 1999 and Manchester United had done the triple. He was sort of in footballing terms, godlike status, uh, maybe, maybe not loved by all, but certainly respected for what he'd done. And he was interested in horses and he got to know Magner and they got a little bit friendly through a connection with racing. And at some point in, in the early 2000s, Rocket Gibraltar was the first horse to win seven consecutive Group 1 races in the Northern Hemisphere. And it used to run in uh, Alex Ferguson's colours. And Alex Ferguson said to people that, that John Magner had given him half of this horse. When Rocket Gibraltar was no longer racing, there was always going to be another life to this horse as a stallion and one that is potentially a lot more lucrative. And as far as Alex Ferguson was concerned, owning half the horse meant owning half of the future stud fees as well when it retired. Very clearly in John Magner's mind, no, 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 owning half the horse, if that phrase was ever in fact used, was that he was entitled to half the winnings and it could race in his colours. So uh, eventually, Alex Ferguson decided to sue John Magner in the courts of Dublin. And he was warned not to do so because it might not really go so well, given Magner's business acumen and financial firepower, etc., regardless of the terms of the case. And even Roy Keane uh, apparently said to um, Alex Ferguson, do you really think you want to take on John Magner in the Irish courts, you know? And uh, he criticised in his book afterwards, he criticised Ferguson for, um, for, for having a go. He said, uh, I felt I was entitled to say that. He was just a mascot for them, walking around with this rock Gibraltar. Look at me, how big I am. And he didn't even own the bloody thing. But things got very serious after the case was issued because... Magner was absolute, absolutely adamant that, that he had never agreed that Ferguson could have, have half of the stud fees and wasn't, in that sense, a half-owner of the horse. But as the row began to kick off, um, there was graffiti dubbed on one of Magner's homes saying, uh, hands off, Fergie. And I've always maintained that control was vital to the manager of Manchester United, whether it's Alec Ferguson or someone else, that, that control in dealing with Star players, millionaires, uh, players with celebrity status, some with great egos, uh, and it, it has to be controlled in order to be successful. So it got really, really heated, and Manchester United then came into play because if you were John Magner, what better way to put pressure on the football manager of Manchester United than to become the biggest shareholder in Manchester United? So it was J.P. McManus and John Magner together 
bought up 28% of Manchester United uh, for a, roughly about 210 million euro. And suddenly the pressure started to come on Alex Ferguson. People close to Magner would say, when it would be put to them, you're buying shares in Man United and you're fighting with the manager and the coach. You don't want to force him out because he's one of the best assets the club has. And people close to Magner would say, this isn't about Man United. This is about the horse. All settled in the end. Did we ever get any figures on what was involved? Ferguson was offered, as part of negotiations, two sets of stud fees per year that Rocket Gibraltar would would garner. And at the time, in 03, the stud fee was about uh, €65,000. So that would have been worth 130000 a year. And Rocket Gibraltar went on to sire uh, 16 Group 1 winners. And the horse only died about a year ago. So that would have been potentially lucrative. But Ferguson turned it down. In the end, he settled for an agreement of two and a half million pounds sterling, which was paid over to him. And then that was the end of any connection he had with Rocket Gibraltar. John Magner, he likes to keep things private, does he? He is a very private individual. He has a you know, a house on the shores of Lake Geneva. He has a place in Marbella. He has, you know, they have the Sandy Lane Resort. You know, he lives incredibly well. But there is a bit of a contradiction about him that he's such a well-known figure in the racing and financial world. But he's a bit of a mystery man in the sense that because he doesn't speak publicly or have a media profile, he tries to avoid it most of the time. Um, There's not a lot known about him, you know. He is a fan of art, or is he a fan of investing in art? Well, that's a good question, Finon, and I don't know the answer. Probably a bit of both. Like people who invest in art at the top end, they like the investment and the money first and the art second. In his case, I don't know, maybe he, maybe he absolutely worships the paintings that he's bought. But I'll give you an example. Two paintings, just two, and he would have a much bigger collection. He bought a, a painting. British artist. Uh, It was painted in 1776. He then wanted to sell it and he was denied an export license by the British authorities because it was seen as a very important piece of British art. Joshua Reynolds, who's the great society portrait painter, uh, uh, just uh, a a kind of production line of glamorous portraits as well as very moving portraits, decided extraordinarily to paint this young Polynesian figure, full length, with this kind of heroic, beautiful grandeur. He applied several times. The painting ended up in cold storage while this sort of uh, block was going on because they wanted to keep it in Britain and they actually wanted to buy it themselves. Eventually, just this year, uh, a deal was reached where a British gallery and an American gallery stumped up £50 million to buy the painting from John Magner, which he had bought for 10 and a half in 2001. But in 2003, he bought a painting, a nude portrait by Amadeo Modigliani, and he bought that for $26.9 million in 2003, and he sold it in 2018 for €131 million. Euro. So they're just two, two deals, I suppose, in the art world that he's been involved in. It's a bit of a Midas touch, but, you know, like everybody else, I'm sure there, there are things that haven't worked out so well. Not everything turns to gold, just most things with John, with John <laughs> exactly. Magner. Exactly. And on a big scale, it seems. On the question of a Midas touch, when you go back to Rocket Gibraltar and strategically buying shares in Man United, uh, partially as a way of having some leverage in resolving that row, but I'm sure JP McManus had his eye on making money too. 
Magda and McManus, when they sold their shares to the Glaciers when the company was sold, they made a profit of 120 million euro on the deal. And my thanks to Richard Kern and Shane Phelan. I'm Fiannan Sheehan, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by D. Reddy, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE, News Talk, The Racing Channel, and The Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts.